Amen. And thank you, praise team. What a wonderful reminder of the faithfulness of God, the one who's unchanging, and praise the Lord that he is. I want you to take a Bible this morning. Turn with me to the book of Haggai. Now, that's probably not one that you've been reading lately. The best way to find it is to find Matthew, then go back three books. Pretty short book, just a front and a back page. The book of Haggai, as we speak today about perspiration and inspiration. I want to begin with a poem. And I want you to learn it. You can learn this poem in no time at all. It goes like this. Sitting still and wishing makes no person great. The good Lord sends the fishing, but we must dig the bait. Now, I'm going to say it one more time, and then you can say it back to me, all right? Or maybe you won't have to do that. But I do want you to learn it. Sitting still and wishing makes no person great. The good Lord sends the fishing, but we must dig the bait. Somebody said that the more you put into something, the more you get out of it. Or to say it another way, there's a direct link between what you invest in something and what you enjoy in that thing. Or to say it another way, there's a direct link between perspiration and inspiration. There are things that only God can do. Only God can make the fish go to the net. But there are things that God said you must do in order for this to happen. And today I want to talk a little bit about that in light of the topic of revival. Revival has a, a, a lot of shades of meaning. For most of us, we think of revival, we think of a series of meetings. We meet for a week or a half week, and we believe if we'll do that, that somehow that will rejuvenate our faith and we will all be on fire for Jesus. I've seen a lot of revivals come and go, and that's not revival. Revivals when the heart of an individual is shaken by God, stirred in his spirit, so that the level of commitment is risen to a whole new level, and that that seems to be the new level for that individual. But I do want to remind you that usually you get out of it what you put into it. Let's think about it. Olympic gold, we're going to have some Olympics coming up real soon. Olympic gold is only achieved after intense training. Academ academic achievement usually follows a lot of hard works and long nights. Vocational promotion usually comes because you've been faithful and you've worked hard. Generally, we understand that the more I put into something, the more I get out of it. Have you ever gone to church and went away and said, I just didn't get anything out of that today? Or have you ever wondered... Why is it that someone in the room can be moved by God deeply and you not be moved at all? Have you ever got to the place where you're experiencing spiritual boredom? Or maybe, maybe you felt that you were inhibited somehow from truly worshiping the Lord. You know, when COVID came, the church contracted. We went through a significant change in how we worship and who worships. And many people decided at that time that the best thing to do was to stay home, and I get that, that was fine. But there was a study made when COVID was finished, a study made of churches in America by Lifeway, and Lifeway found some amazing things. By 2021, when the doors were finally open and you were allowed to come back to church, that only three-quarters of those who had been in church returned to church. What is more disturbing is this. Seven to ten percent of those who were surveyed said, 
they would never be back to church again. I wonder how can that happen? Someone is faithful to the Lord. They're in the house of God week after week. They hear the same sermon as others. They, they know that the, the word of God, they're supposed to be doing the right thing. And yet they say, I'm never going back. Just this morning, Rick Howerton, a friend of mine, the pastors, posted a, uh, a map of America. And the map was an interesting read because it had a percentage in every state. And the percentage was the number of people who are evangelicals, or they identify saying, we're Bible believers, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we believe in heaven and hell. They're Bible believers, and they self-identify as that. And the map showed a percentage of those who say they are believers not some weird group like the Mormons or the Muslims or something like that. People who say they are believers, only 17% in America. Only 17% in Kentucky are going to be in church at all. Now that's of those who say, those who say, I am a follower of Jesus. In, in Bowling Green, 20%. 20%. Five Five, uh, uh, pardon me, 20%. That means out of five that you see, four Christians aren't going to be in church this week or any week. I like what a little girl down in India said. They were having a Bible study at this place, and she didn't know what to call it. She said, I think we're going to have a revival down there at our church. Now, she meant a revival, but she really got it right. Part of our problem is we haven't listened to the Word of God, and quite frankly, it's not that important to us. And that brings me down to the book of Haggai. Haggai is a senior prophet. He lived in a time when there was a return to Israel. You remember the story. The Babylonians came down and they took Judah captive and they led, led away those nations and they were under the promise they were going to return. Seventy years later, the king says, okay, you can go back. Three waves of Jews make their way back to the promised land. The first group that shows up in Jerusalem is, is so happy, they're so grateful that God has delivered them from captivity and they finally get to go back to their homeland. They're so happy. The first thing they do when they get back is they start building the temple. That is, they literally go out and they build the foundation and they pour the concrete. The slab is laid. Now all you've got to do is build it. They poured the concrete and did nothing else for 16 years. There it lays, the constant testimony of, of the house of God that is important but unimportant. They walk by it on the way to work. Their children play near it. But the house of God is sitting there as a laughingstock to the whole world to see because the people of God have not taken the house of God seriously. That's where Haggai picks up. He's a straight shooter. He reminds me of a country preacher. He's got a bold message. If you read the book, there's only two chapters, but there are four sermons that were written in this short book. And we're going to look at one of them in chapter 1. And the four sermons were there to say to the people of God, we need to get serious about the things of God. With that said, I want you to begin reading with me in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the second year of, the king, of king Darius, this is September the 1st, 520 B.C., on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai, the prophet of 
to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. The Lord of hosts says this. You ought to underline that. This is what God is saying. The Lord of hosts says this. These people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of hosts says this. Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, but you harvest little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never enough to become drunk. You put on clothes, but never enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages in a bag with a hole in it. And the Lord of hosts says this, Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house. Then I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is a declaration of the Lord of hosts. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I, God, I have summoned a drought on the field and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and whatever the ground yields on the people and the animals and on, on all that your hands produce. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. So the people feared the Lord. Haggai, God's messenger, declared the Lord's message to the people I am with you, the Lord declares. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah. He stirred up the spirit of the high priest Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. They began work on the house of Yahweh, of hosts, their God, on the 24th day, the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. While Haggai had a specific message that was intended for a specific audience at a specific time, it's important to remember as you read the text that the application of the text is for all time. Furthermore, we would say that this, this particular incident is an illustration of the ongoing challenge that every people of God have faced since Genesis up to the modern time. Haggai is simply telling God's people, it's not enough to sit on your hands and hope that something good happens while you're busy chasing and pursuing everything else in life. In fact, he has a very strong challenge. I want to show it to you. He begins by saying that all of us who are God's people need to face the truth about our current level of spiritual investment. If you ask yourself, why am I unhappy, or why am I dissatisfied with the things of God, maybe the, the answer is, because I have not invested much of my life, myself, my energy in the work of God. Haggai identifies two 
two problems that the people of God have struggled with for years. Number one, procrastination. At verse 2, he says that you're saying, the people are saying, that time has not yet come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. In different words, these folks, like people today, are saying, you know, when I get around to it, when my life is less complicated, when I don't have as many obligations, when things smooth out and I've got lots of money and lots of time, then I will give God the best of my life. Can I just weigh in on that? By the time you get to that, there won't be much of the best of your life left. The fact of the matter is, we can always find a convenient excuse to say it's not time for me to be busy following God because, frankly, I have other things in my life. They failed to see the importance, the importance of the house of God and thus the work of God in general. This idea that someday we'll roll around seldom ever happens. Someday I'll take a class. Someday I'll sing a special. Someday I'll help my neighbor. Someday I'll be involved in the work of God. That is simply procrastination, and he calls us out on it. He says we need to be honest and face up to the reality of where our spiritual investment is because, frankly, we're not giving God what we owe him. Now, the second thing that he identifies is not just procrastination, but this idea of preoccupation. I want you to look with me at verse 3. He says this, the Lord said through Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now look at that phrase, paneled houses. You can already conjure up in your mind what that looks like. This was a luxury. It's a luxury. The people have been back in town for about 16 years. They dropped the work on God's house, but they did not slow down the work on their house. They didn't slow down at all. In fact, this is an indication that the Israelites had already picked up a degree of wealth because paneled houses were a luxury. And what it tells me is this, that they had the time and the money to do what they wanted on their house, but no time nor inclination to do anything at God's house. Now, I say all that to say this, that we live in a busy world. America is so busy running from this to that to the other that we say, well, I've got to get my kids to the ball game. Can, can I weigh on that, on that real quick? If your kids going to the ball game keeps you out of church, then you are telling your kids that God does not matter. Plain and simple. I, I just want to be clear here that you need to be saying to your kids that the highest priority of your life is that they have God in their life. Because if you don't make that the priority, they will never make that the priority. I read an article this week talking about those who are preteens. Preteens. They're not even teenagers yet. And they have already decided, because their parents don't care, they're not going to be going to church in the future. Now, what does it really mean? It means that they picked up the values of their parents. Now, I'm simply saying this. We're so busy doing everything in the world that we think matters that we've left off the time for God, and God simply says, hey, let's stop playing games here. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Face up to the fact that if you're not doing something for God, that's on you. You're just preoccupied. You're busy. Sure enough, the tires on your car probably never cool off, but the fact is you're busy, and the busyness that you offer is a 
lame excuse in the ears of God. One day a farmer went next door to his neighbor. He asked if he could borrow some rope. And the other farmer said, well, uh, I'm sorry, I can't loan you my rope. I'm using it to hold up the milk. And the first farmer thought, milk? He said to him, he said, well, you can't tie up milk with a rope. The second farmer said, well, you know, when you don't want to do something, it doesn't matter what the excuse is, does it? Well, that's really true. If you and I don't want to do something for God, the excuse becomes irrelevant. It's just an excuse. He says, face the truth about our investment. Now, he continues on. He continues on by a challenge. He repeats it twice to tell us that we need to consider, consider the direction that we're going. I want you to look with me at verse 5. He said, now the Lord of hosts says this, I think carefully about your ways. Drop down to verse 7. The Lord of hosts says, think carefully about your ways. Twice he's, he's called on them to consider their current path or to ask this. If my life continues as it is, where will I end up at? Where will I be in five years, ten years, or wherever that termination point is for my life, where will I be in that time? You know, if you go out here and you get on I-65, and you do not get off I-65, you're going to end up in one of two places. You're either going to end up in Chicago, or you're going to end up in Mobile. I would say go to Mobile because the weather's warm down there and it's freezing to death up in Chicago. But I'm just simply saying this. Once you get on the road, if you don't get off the path that you're on, you're going to end up at a place. And if you, have, if you have put God on the back burner, you're on a road. And that road's leading you away from God. And if you, if you stay on that road, where are you going to end up at the end of that road? That's the question. He says to them, he said, think about your life without God. He talks about the stuff they put in their barn and the stuff that they eat and they drink. Let's say it a different way. You will never find satisfaction in life as long as you're on the road that's away from God. He says it doesn't matter what you put in the barn, it won't satisfy you. What you put in your belly won't satisfy you. What you put on your back and what you put in the bank, none of that will ever bring satisfaction to you because you left out God in your life. He said, consider the path that you're on. If God is on the back up burner of your life, you're going to end up somewhere, and it's not where you need to be. And he flips that conversation down at verse 7. He said, now, I want you to think about what happens if you do have God in your life, if you do follow him. Have you lost something? The idea is simply this, no, you haven't. He says in verse 7 and 8, he said, if you will do what I've told you, if you will go and build this thing, I will be pleased with you, and it will glorify me. I've often thought about the end for me. When I uh, get closer to heaven, I wonder, will I hear from God, well done, thou good and faithful servant, or will I hear something like this? What happened to you? He says, if you will follow me, I will take pleasure in you. I will be glorified through you. I'll be pleased by the things that you do. The fact is, you've got to think about where you're heading. 
We as a church have to think this. Those who are, who are in the pew individually have to think about it. Where's my life heading? Where's it going to end up at? He said, consider your ways with God or your ways without God. There was a man driving down the road one day, and <clears throat> he saw a woman because he wasn't sure how to find a place, and he stopped this woman and asked how far is it to get to this place that I'm trying to get to? She said, well, if you keep going the direction that you're going, it's 25,000 miles. But if you'll turn around, it's only three miles. That's what I'm trying to tell you. If you keep running from God, you may end up in a distance from him that you never thought you would ever go. You never believed that would happen. But if you'll just turn around. If you'll just turn around, you'll find that God is there and God's waiting for you. The call from Haggai is simply this. Be honest about what's going on in your life spiritually. Then consider where your path is heading. Consider where you're going to end up. And then finally, he says, I want you to surrender to God now. If you look at your life and you realize I'm going in the wrong direction or you realize that maybe I haven't been highly invested in the work of God, I've been busy taking care of myself, my children, my family, I've done everything else I want to do, but you really haven't pursued God with all of your heart. He said, it's time to surrender now. I want to ask you a simple question, <clears throat> very simple. What is it that keeps you from selling out to Jesus lock, stock, and barrel? What is it? You can't blame your spouse. You can't blame your children. What is it that keeps you from selling out to Jesus lock, stock, and barrel? By the way, because you're not sold out to Jesus, that's why you come to church and you go, wait, I didn't get anything out of that. God is moving the hearts and lives of other people, but I didn't get anything out of it. Why? Because you weren't surrendered to God. I want to show you a pattern here that Haggai lays out that I think is consistent with revival. Consistent with revival. And I want you to be here on Wednesday nights. Those Wednesday nights are designed to be revival nights. Not meetings, but we're, we're coming so we can say, God, how can I get my life right with you? Here's a pattern. Pattern of personal revival. Number one, be obedient. Be obedient. Verse 12 says this, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, the high priest, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. I wish I had a really big screen behind me so I could put one word up on the screen that tells you the path, the path that God has for you. And it's the word obey. Obey. You've heard me say often, it's not the parts of the Bible that we don't understand that we struggle with. It's the parts that we do understand. Because we're simply saying, I'm going to obey those, or I'm not going to obey those. When you obey God, you position yourself for the blessing of God. If you are disobeying God, then you have pitched yourself over against Him. Can I, can I let you in on a little secret? Obedience in the mundane, I'll come back to what that means. Obedience in the mundane is an act of worship. What does that mean? That may mean that, that your job is very simple. Whatever you do in the work of the Lord, it may, not be, it may not be your preaching or teaching or doing whatever, but you're faithful in the thing God gave you, and it's mundane, it's not glorious, not, not whatever, Obedience in the mundane is an act 
of worship. By the way, when you go down to your work, when you do the best job that you can and you live a life for Christ, that people can see you, that obedience is still an act of worship as long as you render it unto the Lord. It doesn't matter what it is that you're doing. Obedience. Obedience. Now, obedience is the key that opens everything. I want you to notice verse 12 closely. It says this at the end of it. It says, the people fear the Lord. So obedience breeds something, and that's reverence. you got to get this part right. Obedience breeds reverence. By the way, try this with your kids. If your kids disobey you, do they respect you? Now, you already know the answer to that, right? If they disobey you, they don't respect you. But obedience is a sign of respect. In this text, he's talking about fear. This is not the kind of fear where I'm trembling and shaking. It's the kind of fear that I had of my dad. If I was doing something wrong, I had a reason to be afraid. But really what it was is I had enormous respect for my dad. And that's the point of it, that obedience... Obedience yields respect. And when you reverence someone, that results in something. I want you to look at verse 13. Because they had moved to be obedient and their hearts were then reverent to God, he says at verse 13, Haggai, the messenger, delivered the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you. Reverence results in communion. Oh, that's where it really is. Obedience moves you to reverence. Reverence opens the door to communion. That is, if you want to have a closer, intimate relationship with God, it begins right here. I find it interesting, I find it very interesting, that God had had withheld His blessing from them until the moment they became obedient, and then they were enjoying communion so much that they forgot about all the rest, all the problems, all the trials. The communion with God was the key component. Now, what happens when you have communion with God? Well, it gets better. When you have communion with God, that fellowship develops into greater intimacy. Verse 13, he's with you. And then God does something for you. Notice what it says in verse 14. God stirred them up. I love this part. God stirred them up. He stirred up the leaders. He stirred up the people. Everybody got, we would call it today, fired up. For Jesus. They all began to, to enjoy the work of God. Let me, let me put it in another, another term. When perspiration, obedience, when perspiration happened, inspiration occurred. If you're wondering why you don't feel something or why there's not some fuzzy tingle, maybe it's because we got to go back to this idea of perspiration for God. I'm obedient to Him, and then I have the intimacy with God, and when that occurs, then then there's the inspiration. Then all of a sudden it becomes real to you. Then all of a sudden their joy flows. You want to know how to find your joy? Stop asking everyone to serve you. Start serving someone on behalf of God. And when you do, the joy will flow. How do I do that, Brother Jerry? Well, go to a nursing home. Help somebody. Take something in church that needs to be done and do it. Help your neighbor. You can visit the lost. Perspiration, then inspiration. It has never been otherwise. You don't come to church and get all inspired and then become obedient. No, you get obedient, and then God will take care of the rest. I want you to go back in your mind's eye to a burning bush. Moses has been on the backside of the Midian Desert 
as a no-name nobody. Nobody cared about Moses, and to be frank about it, had this bush not been out in that field, we would have never known his name. One day he was tending to the sheep. That was his job, and he was being obedient in his job. He was tending to the sheep, and he saw a bush that was burning, and the Bible says it was burning, but it was not burnt up. Naturally, that caught his eye. And the Bible says he turned aside, and he went over to where that bush was, and he heard the voice, the voice of the Almighty. And this is what he said, Moses, take the shoes off your feet, for this place is holy ground. I've often wondered, what would have happened if he didn't take his shoes off? What would have happened if he had been disobedient in the little thing? Didn't seem like a big thing. Just take your shoes off. Would he have experienced the intimate presence of God in the way that, that only Moses seemed to have experienced it? Would he have had the mountaintop experience where God hides him in the cleft of the rock with his hand and he comes down and he's glowing with the Shekinah glory of God? Would he have been able to walk through the Red Sea? If he hadn't taken his shoes off in the little thing, perspiration, then inspiration. You want to have a revival? Get obedient, because that's where it starts. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Haggy eyes a straight shooter. He doesn't pull any punches for anybody, because he was just saying what God was saying. And I'm just simply saying to you, times really aren't that different. We're all busy chasing things that bring no satisfaction. And I'm saying to you that the moment you get serious about God, the moment God begins to invade your life with blessing. And the great blessing, the most incredible blessing, is the presence of God in your life. You want to have a revival? That's what it means. So I'm going to ask two things. Number one, do you have God in your life at all? Is God a part of your story? Have you ever asked Jesus to forgive your sin and come into your life? I know I've not spoken about that today, but it's possible that there's someone in this room that's yet to come to faith in Jesus, and your great need in this moment is you need to have your sins forgiven and for God to come into your life and transform who you are. In just a moment, we'll have an invitation. Brother Barry will be here at the front. I'll be here. And if you have not accepted Christ as your Lord, that is your most important decision because that changes the complete direction of your life. You are heading one way, and the, the end result would be awful. But you can change and head to heaven if you get your sins forgiven. Now, I know that most people in the room already follow Jesus you're a believer I just want to ask you are you walking in obedience to the things that God has put in your life because obedience is the key to everything you want to have the presence of God experience his love his peace and his joy be obedient for some that's going to mean that you're going to go to somebody and make something right that's wrong for others it means that you're going to you're going to take some position some responsibility 
and start serving God. For others, it might mean that your relationship needs to be healed in your marriage. For someone else, obedience might mean, it might mean that you teach a class or you do something else. It might look different for everyone. I'm simply saying whatever God has moved on your heart, that's what you're supposed to do in this moment. Revival will occur the moment you start to be obedient because you'll begin to experience renewed intimacy with the Lord. That's the invitation. In just a moment, we're going to pray. We're going to sing. If you want to come up here to the front and you want to pray and kneel here or you want to come up to these front benches, sit down in that chair and just pray, God, God, revive me. I want to renew my faith. We, we plead with you to make that decision for Christ today. Don't leave like you came. Leave with Jesus. May he be glorified in it all. We pray it in his name. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. And God, we're grateful that you don't give up on us, that you keep giving us another chance to walk in obedience. Now, Father, I pray for our church that this will be a place where God has a freedom to speak and to change lives. May it all be done for the glory of the Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.